Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. It has been an eventful summer uh, in both Italy and the UK. The incumbent prime ministers were forced to resign after suffering collapses in support from their governments. With the future leadership of these two critical countries now up in the air, major question marks loom for both Europe and the transatlantic relationship. Meanwhile, Germany is struggling with a worsening energy crisis as the country attempts to prepare itself for a future without access to Russian natural gas. All of this, of course, is occurring against the backdrop of the ongoing war in Ukraine, where the Ukrainians appear to be gearing up for a counteroffensive in the South. The turmoil in Europe, however, is raising real concerns about unity, cohesion, and the staying power of the West support for Ukraine. And so to help us step back and unpack what's going on in Europe, we're really pleased to welcome back to the podcast, Catherine Kluver-Ashbrook and Max Bergman. So welcome back, both of you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Quick bios. Uh, Catherine serves as Executive Vice President at the Bertelsmann Foundation. Her prior positions include Director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations, as well as Executive Director of the Future of Diplomacy Project, at the Harvard Kennedy School. And Max Bergman is the director of the Europe program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And prior to joining CSIS, he was senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, where he focused on Europe, Russia, and US security cooperation. Okay, so to dive right in, I think let's start just really broad. Um, And Max, maybe we can start with you. There's a ton going on um, as we kind of covered there in the intro turmoil in Italy, the UK, uh, the gas crisis in Germany. We've got the grain deal and perhaps the first shipments leaving Ukraine today. Inflation, heat waves and fires in parts of Europe. Kind of, We were just talking before we started recording about just what a, what a moment this is and kind of trying to step back and make sense of what's happening and what the implications will be. But, you know, that big broad question is, what what are you kind of most attuned to? What are you most focused on? If there was one or two things that you were either most concerned about or maybe even most optimistic about, I don't know, just to pick your brain and 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 hear from you what you're thinking about. Sure. Well, well, thanks for having me back. Uh, I, I think I'm, I tend to be more optimistic than most analysts when it comes to looking at Europe, and I think that's partly because it's always easy to look at Europe and say Europe is divided. And I think that's because Europe is actually, they do their foreign policy kind of out in the open. Uh, It's very transparent. It's a bunch of countries coming together. Every, you know, every negotiating position of each country is leaked. Um, And and we all know where European sort of various European countries stand. And then it kind of comes together behind closed doors and then something kind of comes out out of it at the end. And I think actually, if you were to look at the U.S. process and and, and you know, the State Department, the Pentagon, the Treasury, you know, were all to kind of have their positions you know, publicly known before going to an NSC meeting, we would be like, oh my God, America's so divided. Uh, and, and so I, I tend to see Europe, I think is still incredibly united when it comes to the crisis in Ukraine. I just think that each issue that comes up, there's gonna be divisions, there's gonna be, you know, Europe's gonna have to work through the sausage making process of how to kind of move forward when, when each problem emerges. Now, all that being said is there's real uh, a real crisis ahead. Uh, it's gonna be uh, a tough winter. Uh, the European economy is looking at uh, um, 
basically going into recession. Uh, it doesn't look good when it comes to exports and manufacturing. Uh, and their inflation uh, is really driven by uh, the war, by increase in energy prices and the need to rapidly decouple from, uh, from Russia. Uh, so the next two winters, this winter in particular, is going to be really tough. It's going to be a huge challenge to the German economic model, which is built on getting cheap Russian energy and then uh, exporting goods abroad. So uh, there, this is going to be a big challenge. That said, I think Europe is well-equipped to get through this crisis. We've already seen uh, the European Central Bank uh, under Christine Lagarde take steps to try to address potential challenges with the Italian economy and the German economy. Basically, the spread between interest rates is, grows, and, and, uh, and the European Central Bank isn't going to do what it did 10 years ago, which was sort of putz around for a few years until Draghi came in and said, okay, we're going to do whatever it takes to save the euro. So I think we're, gonna, we're seeing already a stronger economic response. And then when we look at situations, political instability, like in Italy, I'm curious what, curious what Catherine thinks about this, but, you know, Italy's returning to politics. They had a, 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 you know, they've had a caretaker government under Draghi, and Draghi is the exact leader that you want in the situation. No one wants him to the situation, but, you know, politics returns, and this is roughly on schedule with how things have worked in the past with Italy, where certain uh, uh, parties that have been in the uh, caretaker government are now losing, you know, seeing their popularity decline in the polls, they want to break free, and we may be looking at an Italian far-right government but, you know, Maloney, who is the leader, uh, who's the, the party that is um, uh, uh, most likely to win, uh, she is uh, she is doing, you know, she's actually a pro-Atlanticist far-right leader. And, you know, it's also early days in this election. And I think there may be some some swings that move uh, towards the towards the Democratic Party, which is the center left. So, uh, you know, there, there's going to be a lot of questions going forward in the next six weeks about Italian politics. But. Frankly, Italy needs to needs to get the the euro money that has uh, came uh, after the uh, COVID crisis, the next gen EU funding of roughly two hundred billion euros. And Maloney has indicated that, despite being eurosceptic, that she's going to try to uh, continue with some of the reforms that are needed to unlock some of the EU money. So my guess is Europe gets through this. Europe has survived in crises before and actually has come out stronger. This is going to be a really rough two years, but I think they're going to get through it. I've sort of gone on long enough, but uh, you gave an open-ended question. I, I, I went on, but I'm uh, curious, Catherine's take and, and, and yours as well. And you put a lot on the table. So Catherine, yeah, feel free to kind of hone in on, on, on what you're thinking about and can pick up on anything that Max put out there, but over to you. One thing I think is that, you know, Europe, the EU, the European Union, Brussels has matured through crises, right? The kind of thing that we used to say, oh, look, you know, don't waste a good crisis. And I think we in the uh, analyst chair kept looking at the financial crisis, the migration crisis and said, look, you know, they have wasted crisis upon crisis because uh, they've been uh, unable to put in guardrails that would really prevent um, these kind of sort of cataclysmic events really sucking up. Um, uh, the entire European Union and its composite member states again. What we're seeing now is a really interesting component, meaning to say Brussels is really acting as what it always should, which is the node that sort of writes the ship that kind of keeps the lid on things. While, and I think Max is absolutely right, while in the member states, we're seeing the political churn really play out, right? You have in almost every 
um, major member states, certainly, um, you know, taking out the Nordics, uh, this issue right now between, you know, what is the Ukraine war really? Is it this systems clash? Is it, you know, the, the, the potential end of the West? Is it um, really this, this unbelievably cataclysmic event? Or is it, and, and I'm reflecting in part, the somewhat naive discussion that um, some political elites or societal elites are trying to have, is this really a, a more of, of, of an economic and sociological inconvenience in the long term, right? So the fact, and you saw this play out in the French election, where people voting on the basis and backs of their pocketbooks and on the issues that Max already mentioned, mentioned inflation, contraction of major economies, you know, an idea and understanding of personal wealth and personal happiness and personal um, you know, affordability of their lives. I mean, we'll see this play out in the November congressional election as well. If people are buying the narrative um, that, you know, gas is the price that it is because of the Ukrainian invasion, or are they going to blame the Biden administration? Um, so, you know, that those kind of dynamics are playing out in some way, shape or form. And you also saw some of that play a role in, you know, DeMaio pulling the plug on the, on the coalition in Italy. Um, you know, that you're seeing that political churn. So what Max referred to as the sausage making, but the, the thing that makes me sort of optimistic and interested in what is happening right now is that for once, it seems like Brussels is actually doing its job, quote unquote, keeping the lid on it, immediately turning around, as Max noted, to say, well, fine, Italy, you can change uh, governments, of course, that's in here democratic right and rule. But by that same token, you know, you've signed up to a recovery plan to uh, uh, an economic stability, and that comes with strings attached. So you can't fully unglue, um, as you know, Italy has historically want, uh, been want to do, uh, 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 critical uh, parts of your government and governance reforms. Um, we're going to hold your feet to the fire. We're going to do it in a credible way. Uh, again, look at June, you know, Boris Johnson's almost last chest beating play was on the Northern Ireland uh, protocol. And, um, you know, right there, the European Union was ready at hand to say for infringement processes. There you go. Um, so I've actually been surprised, quote unquote, as how, how much the center, not the geographic center of Europe, but Brussels has held. Um, while there has been a lot of, in some cases, and I'll speak specifically since I'm speaking to you from Berlin, a lot of odd political navel gazing, a lot of politicking going on around the Ukraine question, which I don't think serves anybody and certainly not the people of Ukraine um, on, you know, the question, of course, of the energy uh, issues here in Germany, which I completely agree with Max. And, and you see this written on almost every German wall and in every uh, opinion page here, what this will do to Germany's economic system. But you also, again, you know, don't see the idea of Schadenfreude play out as, as much as you could have. We saw a little bit of that when we saw the news of Germany's economy retracting and the energy deals and energy swaps being negotiated in, in Brussels. Um, that, you know, the Spaniards were using the exact same language toward the Germans as we had in the financial crisis. And yet that was sort of a diplomatic play because at the end of the day, no one in Europe can be interested in having a floundering German economy. So, you know, at the end of the day, um, you're going to have to pull it together. And again, I've been surprised at how the degree to which that has been needed the European Union writ large, which is to say the geopolitical commission that Ursula von der Leyen announced we would have, has been able to kind of square off uh, those political um, battles. Now, does that mean that we're going to get 
that that stability is necessarily going to return to the continent. Not necessarily. If I watch certain things going on in Berlin, the infighting uh, in this coalition um, here is real. Uh, there's a lot of um, tangoing for position. Um, they can't seem to shake. They can't seem to get uh, above, sort of their head above their shoulders in terms of what are the greater, wider objectives. Uh, I, you know, as someone who is a German taxpayer and a German voter, would have also wanted to see, you know, a sort of Eisenhower and or Kennedy-like moment where you would have had the Democratic uh, parties really bring it together and then really drive the promises that were part of the Zeitman, the speech in February home. And instead, Germany has defaulted on almost all of its uh, sort of quick promises um, with respect to the famous Ringtausch, this idea that you would get heavy weaponry to Ukraine by having other EU member states send their old Soviet-era weapons to Kiev to make them quickly, uh, to make them operational very quickly. They've effectively, I mean, we've gotten there, but it's taken long enough. So Germany's credibility here is really on the line. And if we're still working around a German anchor, hyphen, you know, French ideas around European political community, and we can talk about that in a bit. But if Germany still remains that geographic anchor, um, this coalition government has not done itself a lot of favors and continues to embrace this idea of political infighting on the backs of much larger political questions. So from this perspective, my biggest fear is that Germany does not wake up fast enough to the panoply of challenges it faces all at the same time. Uh, such a newbie, uh, such, such a newbie uh, problem there for me. Anyway, thank you all so much for that, uh, for those, uh, those comments. Uh, I, I, there's a lot in what both of you all have said, including optimism, which is great, Max. Uh, uh, and uh, Catherine, I think you're the detail that you went into, I think was really important for our listeners to, to get a handle of, handle on. And so I, um, I have a question for you all, and, and that is this. So who's going to be leading Europe? Who's going to be a leader in Europe within the European Union this winter should things really, really get bad? And, uh, and the economy, particularly in Germany, gets bad, but there's cold houses. Um, and I, so who's going to be the leader there? I, I, Catherine, I think what you said about the EU is something I've been saying as well, that this is really the EU's moment and they're doing the best they can with that. I mean, they've, been, they've had to water things down to take into account the Hungarians and others. But, but if you look at the capitals now, and you guys have, have marched through some of them, but if you look at what we could be faced with in November, December, January, um, a new government uh, in, in London, a, uh, the Macron government weakened by the parliamentary elections in terms of their parliament. Uh, you did a great job, Catherine, talking about Berlin and what could happen there in terms of the coalition and the German people not recognizing where they are. Rome is not going to be the help that they were a few months ago under Draghi, you know, who really led and now he's gone and we could have a far right government that could take us in a whole different direction uh, in terms of Italy and the, the Italian role. Um, and so you then cross the Atlantic and uh, in the United States, we will have had our midterms. Who knows what we will have as a result of the midterms, but obviously we'll be gearing up as well for the presidential election. So, so we're, we're going to be faced with, I think, this question that I'm not going to ask you guys, who in the transatlantic community can lead us uh, and can help lead within the European Union to, to really uh, handle these issues that could be coming down on us? Uh, December, January, February. Who's the leader? 
Well, maybe I'll, I'll take a first crack at it. I, so I, I think you analyzed, a, highlighted a, a real issue. I think uh, Chancellor Schultz hasn't really stepped up uh, to the plate in terms of kind of the, the European leadership role. I think in part, you know, a military crisis is not one that Germany sort of excels at leading on. And also they need uh, a ton of help when it comes to the, the energy side where it's their policies, which in some ways are, are you know, are self-owned. Uh, and then Macron also, you know, I think would like to take the leadership uh, baton uh, and has tried to, but has really alienated Eastern Europeans. A lot of uh, people have, uh, analysts have pointed to kind of the rise of Eastern Europe. Um, and I think that's true to some extent. I think, especially on Ukraine and Russia, I think economically, they're just not going to be able to carry the baton the same way. But to me, someone has stepped up and that's uh, Ursula von der Leyen and, and the European Union. If you think about the, the strong EU response on sanctions, uh, that was, I think, incredibly forward-leaning. When you look at Ukraine uh, and, uh, and EU enlargement to Ukraine, it was very much von der Leyen sort of being out there saying that Ukraine should be part of the EU, should be part of the European family, and then really having to push uh, the member states to come along. And then just recently on uh, the, en the energy response, announcing that everyone needs to ration gas uh, up to 15%. And then, you know, basically uh, pushing the Europeans together to get a deal. So I actually think the, the leadership vacuum, perhaps amongst member states, has given the EU an opportunity to actually uh, really step forward here. Uh, and, you know, that, that's not necessarily given uh, a given going forward. But I think what has been demonstrated, and I think the point, uh, Catherine's point, is that when, you know, Europe is going to have a lot of energy challenges over, over the winter. I think some of what uh, we're looking at, you know, we're always sort of very forward looking and in, in what the challenges are ahead. But actually, just in the last six months, the amount that has been done to reduce dependence on Russian uh, supplies, the amount of uh, action that has been taken by various member states to cut deals, uh, whether it's with Qatar, whether it's with the United States for LNG, everyone is taking uh, rapid action. Uh, and I'm quite optimistic when it comes on the climate side that we're going to have, that Europe's going to have this increase in emissions because they have to restart coal power plants. But actually, you're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, sort of wartime style mobilization when it comes to clean energy projects. You know, a wind farm that would take 10 years to get through the permitting process is going to happen in two. And so this is, I think, going to really in some ways sort of galvanize Europe uh, on the energy front. But I think the EU has really stepped up uh, in playing this role when no member state has really demonstrated the ability to kind of lead uh, all, all, on, on all fronts. To layer one thing in, because I do, I agree with what, what you have just said, Max, and laid it out the way the EU has stepped up. I think one interesting dynamic has been though the way, and Jimmy referred to it, the EU has had to have to water down some of the agreements that they've come to. So Max, you just gave this example about the, the agreement to reduce gas demand by 15%. I think when most people look at it after you take into factor all of the loopholes and other things, it's probably gonna be much closer to 10%, which many say is not gonna be enough. I'm thinking of also the six sanctions package where there were lots of loopholes and exceptions. That's as you both have watched the EU far longer than I have, is that interesting? Like that 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 it's not like a flat consensus, but there's they're they're willing to kind of make these exceptions in order to get things done in a way that seems different. And so I wonder, like EU as a leader, but it looks a little different. I don't I don't know how you reflect on that, Catherine. 
Well, you know, I work a lot with three by five cards. And the first thing I wrote down when Jim asked that uh, question was moral leadership. Because while I agree with Max that what you're seeing is play out, you know, a, a, a breaking of this idea of my old Harvard colleague, Robert Putnam's idea of the two level game, you know, where you go into the negotiation and of course you kind of trade your sovereignty away and then you come back out and you say, hey, I won one for Germany or France or whatever. Um, you are actually seeing a lot more sort of communitarian solutions, but it comes with these dirty trade-offs, which both of you have alluded to. I think it's particularly worrisome, particularly worrisome on the rule of law front on Hungary and Poland, um, because, you know, those are direct wins for Vladimir Putin, because in the shorthand and the lack of attention span that all of us have, you know, that just goes to show that, you know, maybe Europe can can make dirty compromises in order to quote unquote, get it done. And doesn't that just go to show that we're a totally corruptible uh, system and that, you know, and then you, and and things go okay for a couple months and then uh, uh, Orban gets up and gives an incredibly anti-pluralistic speech and is going to be, you know, speaking at CPAC and have a direct connection across the, the Atlantic that way. So those I think are worrisome things. So, I mean, maybe we segmented into, um, kind of the realpolitik leadership in terms of keeping uh, some of the issues contained and creating enough um, space of movement for Europe to get through these impending crises on the backdrop of the fact that what I said in my original response is still true. Europe didn't achieve major structural and or treaty change to be able to deal with all these issues in a way that would have been more stabilizing and rebalancing, we're still, you know, poking at holes here. And for, given all of those realities, Ursula von der Leyen and the commission are doing a good job. That being said, who is going to keep our eye, quote unquote, on the proverbial moral leadership prize? And there I have a different champion um, than Max. And those are, you know, very clearly the leaders of the Nordic countries. I think, um, you know, I call us in particular people who keep underscoring that what we're dealing with is not quote unquote inconveniences with respect to heating and with respect to uh, you know keeping the lights on and transforming our businesses valid and major concerns as those might be and in the German context just to add this you know we're talking about different ministers keep talking about potential social unrest, something that in my mind, uh, you know, speaks more to a civil war narrative, which I don't see happening among the German population. And yet trying to find those bargains between corporate interests and individual interests and completely ungluing some of the fundamental principles in the German constitutional narrative around, um, you know, having balanced budgets. Those are real issues and real problems. And yet again, you know, I do not tire saying this, Freedom is not free. And I think the Nordic leadership, either coming from the voice of sort of Jens Stoltenberg and the representation behind NATO and or Nordic political leadership, I think has been quite powerful. And keeping the Germans in particular, where there's sort of been a very toxic debate of a range of uh, public letters on, you know, what we should be doing or what the country should be doing uh, to get Ukraine to the negotiating table, including a complete, um, you know, uh, yeah, giving up key territories, which I, I would never stand for. Um, you know, those 
things need to, those ideas need to be pushed back with a certain moral clarity, which the chancellor doesn't seem to be fully able to provide in a way that his German electorate is listening and you can, or hearing. And you can see that in every survey, uh, his popularity numbers have dropped drastically. Um, the people who are really wrestling with some of these problems and who are combining a moral clarion narrative and real economic um, realities are people here, like the economics and finance ministers much more. But that obviously gives this idea of the fact that there is no uh, coalescence. So I think you still need that strong moral voice of leadership and you need practical realpolitik leadership. I think in this situation, they're coming from different parts uh, parts of Europe. Well, let me, let me ask a question. The, the, and again, those are just fabulous. This is really a, a very helpful discussion. Um, you know, as we've looked at, in particular myself, as we've looked at uh, the next uh, crisis, we've looked at the winter, we've talked about the uh, economic issues around uh, the shortage of gas to power factories, as well as homes, um, the need for leadership during a time of crisis. The focus has been on energy. The focus has been on gas supplies, it's been on the economy. But what are we missing here? What is the crisis that we might find ourselves in six, eight months from now that isn't necessarily energy related and, and all the work on the energy shortages and gas and that type of thing is for naught because the real crisis is is X. And what I mean by that is, is there something that could happen uh, on the battlefield uh, in Ukraine where suddenly we're finding ourselves in a place where we've got to have a leader to pull us all together because X has happened. It could be on the battlefield. Maybe it's not on the battlefield. Maybe it's something else uh, that is associated with this, the overall problems that we're having now with Russia, Ukraine, this type of thing. But it's not energy related. It's something else. Is there something else lurking out there we ought to really be paying attention to as well, in addition to gas shortages? Well, I think the the battlefield in Ukraine is 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 going to be a huge issue. And and my concern here, you know, we hear a lot of talk about will Europe lack the kind of political will? Will uh, America lack the political will? to support Ukraine. Uh, and, and I, you know, concern that Ukraine is sort of falling out of, uh, falling off the headlines to some degree. And, and I think what we're actually talking about is just, will Europe and America have the money? Uh, will we continue to pony up the funds to support a war effort by Ukraine? And, and I think that's a question both in the United States and in Europe. And I think we need to make this much more about a financial conversation, because what Ukraine is trying to do uh, is effectively take on a global military superpower by themselves. And war is incredibly expensive. Uh, and you know, if we think back to the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, we were paying roughly $10 billion a month. Uh, and I think the problem that we have in Europe and the United States is that we, you know, getting, you, getting equipment to Ukraine is ultimately about allocating the money that you that you can to buy either buy the equipment or to uh, or to backfill so that militaries MODs around Europe have the confidence to give away advanced equipment knowing that they'll have the funding to to continue to supply it and I think that that is a real issue because we get into six months from now war you know we're in sort of a war of attrition and the Ukrainians have continued to come knocking uh, will we have the money? when Europe is in a gas crisis and the economy is really in recession uh, to, to pony up more funds. And I'm a little nervous that we haven't allocated that funding now when there is more political will to do so. 
Andrea is being very patient. She has just returned from, I think, three or four weeks on vacation. And with her return is this great patience towards me for jumping in on, on her. And I'm sorry, just for a quick follow-up. Jeez, Jim, jeez. <laughs> just a quick follow-up. And Catherine, this is also for you. But based on what Max just said, I'm wondering if we're going to find ourselves in a situation where, once again, the Americans go to the allies and say, you guys aren't doing enough. There's got to be better burden sharing. It's not just burden sharing at NATO, but by God, we've put in 10 billion or whatever it is. Uh, you all have to do more, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if that's something we're going to be hearing in the fall as well. But just to throw that on the table, Catherine, over to you. Well, I think, you know, I think you're right. I think that will depend on what happens with the congressional elections. And if they're, you know, if the Democrats smell a Ron DeSantis uh, presidency in the offing, I'm being very glib and exaggerating, you know, then you could see that things are, the narrative will begin to shift. But I'm, I'm really worried. I mean, and it pivots off of Max's point of the idea of simultaneity, because what is going on here is that, you know, Vladimir Putin is waiting for our democracies to disintegrate so that we cannot deliver proof of concept. And what we're, what we're doing right now, in a way, is really struggling to deliver proof of concept because we can't make fundamental principles of our democratic societies work for everybody. So this gets back to Max's point. Have we allocated the money? And if we haven't allocated the money, how are we, A, going to sell this on to our electorate? How are we going to create equal and thriving societies? How are, you know, how are we able to take on problems of redistribution in our societies at home and making sure that those who need warm homes, uh, quote unquote, have them in the winter and, um, you know, rural American communities uh, people there can drive and commute to work because those are economic realities that still, quote unquote, provide proof of concept. This idea that, you know, we're still moving ahead and trying to provide better lives for the next generation. Clearly, we're, we're seemingly falling down on creating a balance that our voters understand because we're beginning to see the shift in public opinion starting in Central and Eastern Europe and moving across. There, you still see, you know, really vivid support um, for continuing the arming machinery that is, is ongoing towards Ukraine. And then as you move right across Europe and Italy, you know, we saw those, those numbers, things are beginning to shift. People are thinking much more about their pocketbooks. And the again, you know, the fact that we're watering down certain things, that we're thinking about, well, is rule of law really important? I think the main piece is how do we look at dealing with this simultaneity of challenges? Are we able to walk and chew gum at the same time, which is run a major military operation together? Um, and then, you know, let's not think about what might happen in, in Asia Pacific potentially at the same time. And or, um, you know, there are other how things like the famine uh, across the globe plays out if we get another major migration wave coming across the Mediterranean Ocean over the or Mediterranean Sea in the next couple of months. I mean, simultaneity to me seemingly is the largest challenge, in part because we never did our institutional homework adequately, because the nascent transatlantic relationship is still that, it's sort of in this rebirth still, and again, is facing potential grave injury through these two uh, major elections we have coming at us uh, in the United States. Um, and so how all these puzzle pieces fit together with an individual understanding, an individual voter understanding of what their own agency is and what their own well-being is, I think is, is the really critical thing. And so again, there we get to who wins 
the battle of the narratives and how can we do it? And I, I just fear that, you know, that narrative democracy versus autocracy is kind of running thin in terms of its capacity to convince people to accept pain. Um, and so, you know, that's where I would want the transatlantic relationship. And we asked, and Andrea asked earlier where I see optimism. I do see a lot of optimism in the Trade and Tech Council and a lot of things on the technology front that have happened these last couple of weeks. You know, again, to deliver proof of concept and when we can deliver proof of concept transatlantically and individually as member states in the EU, we're really banging that drum because our voters need to hear the fact that we can still deliver on our basic promises. Catherine, you just mentioned, I mean, I think excellent answers to Jim's questions, you know, just to summarize some of what you said, and it was what I was thinking when Jim asked, I'm really worried about the potential for the influx of migrants from the South, just as you said, Catherine, with high food prices, um, a lot of the, you know, whether it's Egypt, Libya, some of these countries that where you could see an influx of migrants and what that would do to cohesion within the alliance as well, as you would then have the Southern European states again, you know, it would amplify the threat that the Southern European countries are facing while you've got the Northern Europeans still focused on the on the Russia piece. So I think that's really worrying. And then Catherine, your point about the Taiwan issue too. I mean, we're in a moment, you know, with Nancy Pelosi's trip of heightened tensions in the US-China relationship. And what does that mean if there is a rise in tensions in the Indo-Pacific? It may very well make it more difficult for us, for the United States to continue to send more HIMARS or some of these other systems if that kind of internal jockeying, what we send to Ukraine, then by definition can't go to the Indo-Pacific. And that's going to be a real challenge for the United States also. So, I mean, Jim, it's a great question because there it does feel like, I mean, in addition to all the churn and turmoil that there is, there is presently in Europe, you can see these potential crises looming on the horizon. And I think that's what gives me a little bit more anxiety. But Catherine, you wanted to pick up on that. Just a quick two finger, because again, this whole proof of concept bit, you know, we have moved away from this idea that compromise is actually a good thing. And so when we see some of these negotiations going on, when we're seeing some cozying up to Turkey, because we need Turkey not to be a, you know, sort of a, a spanner in the works um, in the Mediterranean, we saw some uh, sort of frantic diplomacy by the German foreign minister uh, more recently on the Turkish Greek islands dispute. You know, there are all these sort of different things going on. Again, it's the same thing with Biden. Uh, Biden's visit to, uh, to to Saudi Arabia and MBS, you know, where can we manage to have a, some moral clarity in the leadership, you know, as we define how democracies should be acting in the world and still satisfy some of the basic economic needs that democracies have to have to thrive. And I think this is really the moment, this, you know, are we able to hold together that dual promise that we made to one another in committing to a, um, you know, post-war multilateral architecture that democracy and economic thriving and then care, you know, in terms of social terms go hand in hand are we proving, are we making Russia's point for Russia, which is to say that that, of course, idea of working out those compromises through constant negotiation is fundamentally broken because that is what we need to, quote unquote, you know, work through this moment of churn. And if we don't succeed here, I think those are the really fundamental questions because right after these dealing with these individual crises that are 
you know, or, or, or panoply of crises is this idea of, of, of how will we be able to save a credible multilateral architecture? Because if we have a grain deal and then immediately the Russians bomb, uh, you know, a, a major harbor uh, as, that, as a component of this grain deal, where is the credibility in the multilateral system and where, how will we be able to put that, those pieces back together again? I think those that's effectively, even though I think our voters aren't fully realizing that and are not are potentially not articulating that at the ballot box, but that is that's got to be the fundamental issue of insecurity in my mind because these things no longer come together and the compromises that need to be made in order to try to restore those pieces fitting together are no longer clear and in some cases are no longer morally tenable because it's such an important one. You talked about this kind of like proof of concept and governments being able to deliver in an equitable way. I mean, already, you know, obviously, Catherine, you mentioned Orban and his, you know, horrible comments about mixed race, or I can't remember the exact quote, but, you know, he's at the right of that far right piece. Uh, In uh, Italy, I think we're all expecting a swing to the right. Um, given all of this, and certainly if you layered on a migration issue, but given all of this, what are how worried are you about a return of the right? You know, and I could just kind of rewind in my mind back to before COVID, right? That was a big topic. And there was, we were all very worried about these far-right political parties. And then COVID discredited many of them as people kind of believed, you know, saw the utility of experts and science and an inability of some of these far-right governments to adequately address a global pandemic, it kind of took the steam out of that movement for a little while. How worried are you about a resurgence of of the far-right within the European political landscape? So I think it's something you definitely have to be, be concerned about. I mean, as I was optimistic about, uh, about Italy, you know, it it is concerning that the the party that's a successor to Mussolini, uh, and is a far right nationalist party that they could potentially get the most votes and, 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 and appoint a prime minister. Uh, but I think what we're seeing here is that I think there's a tendency, and I think this is particularly true on the American side, because we're looking at the potential for, for Donald Trump to run again, to return, that we're looking at the, the revival of the far right populism that we saw, you know, f- five years ago, or you know, sort of remains this day. I think what look what we're seeing globally, and especially in Europe, is every economy, every country is undergoing a massive stress test. In effect, and this is going to be challenging whether you're a Democratic administration, uh, Joe Biden, or Viktor Orban. And his entire, you know, political capital has basically been built on uh, a, a strong response to the 2008 or to the 2008 2010 uh, economic crisis, where he didn't really enact austerity, and the Hungarian economy did quite well. Now suddenly there's high inflation. It's Orbán's voters, Orbán's constituency that is going to really suffer with increase in in energy prices. And what does Orban do? Well, he needs EU money to be unlocked. Suddenly there's real leverage on the EU side. Uh, and I, so I think we're also going to see real challenges to autocratic governments around the world that are going to be facing inflationary crisis. So for me, I think uh, we can underestimate the resilience of democracies. When we look at the French election, you can look at that one of two ways. I think people have tended to look at it and say, okay, look how well Le Pen did. Oh my gosh. Well, you could also look at it as, Macron was an unpopular 
leader running for re-election. Uh, it really felt to me a lot like it was, uh, you know, Clinton versus Trump in 2016, where you had kind of the establishment figure that that lacked a lot of real base of support, wasn't popular amongst the left, wasn't really popular amongst the center right, uh, and and Le Pen was running as a sort of new, you know, as a, as a more establishment politician that really tried to sort of round off the edges of some of her previous positions. And yet Macron beat her by more than 10 points. And yes, he, you know, didn't ha have a, a, parliamentary, a parliamentary majority in the French uh, parliament that's going to create real domestic problems for him. But I think on the, I, so I, I, I think that in some ways that the, the return of the far right to me uh, is, is, is a potential problem. But we're not looking at more Brexits uh, ahead. I think the far right, if anything, has to kind of deal with the fact that you now have a generation of Europeans that have grown up as EU citizens. And the idea that you would leave the EU or really you know, uh, uh, undermine the EU is, is sort of anathema to them. Uh, but it's not going to be pretty on the EU level getting a lot of things done. It could really upset uh, some, of the, some of the consensus that we've seen in a lot of the the progress and decision making, and you have more far right leaders is going to certainly upend the ability to get things done on the EU level. So it's not a good thing, I think, in terms of European cohesion, but it's not maybe the doomsday scenario that it might have been um, when we were looking at it in 2017. Catherine, you want to add anything to that? Just to say that I do think I, that there are these centrist pressures on a number of the far right parties that Max has gone through and been quite didactic about what they are. And yet there are a couple of pieces around how they can shift a system. And we saw that in the American system. We saw that with the appointments of, of judges to, you know, American appellate courts and so on and so forth variations of that, not on the legal side, but on sort of systemic uh, levers are possible in a number of these countries. Um, you know, in uh, both in Hungary and in Poland, you have knocked down drag out fights between the mayors of, na of, of, of the large cities and the capitals and national governments, uh, such that you have heavy, heavy lobbying uh, going on in Brussels right now to funnel EU funds, not in fact through, you know, national governments, but to try to change some of the systems design pieces um, such that, you know, money, quote unquote, actually gets to the people that need it potentially. And that's, Andrea, to your earlier point, that is a remnant of the COVID crisis where we saw, you know, both the Hungarian and Polish government in part try to starve out their cities when it came to the administration of PPE and other things. So there are a lot of different, um, I think, uh, um, flee, fleeing powers, powers, you know, sort of at work on what will constitute um, party parliamentary systems uh, in, in at the heart of Europe. Um, I wouldn't want, quote unquote, uh, the far right to move such to the center that they become an establishment piece, because I think, again, we're making the arguments for uh, the autocracies who keep trying to point at us for being institutionally weak, morally corrupt, um, and not living up to fund fundamental ideas of, of pluralism and equality. So, you know, the question becomes, what is the answer to that? Can other parts of the party particular uh, party um, system begin to muster adequate answers? And I think we're seeing very different pieces uh, uh, happen around uh, around Europe. 
Um, you know, in some cases, we're seeing an odd resurgence of, again, here in Germany, and I don't know how long it is to stay, but, you know, nobody put their money on the Social Democrats. If you ask them six months before uh, the election that, you know, we'd have a Social Democratic chancellor. So I think what, what, what that says more is that you know, party political systems, because of the pressures um, endemic and exogenous that are coming at them in this simultaneity that we discussed before, are really undergoing some very, very fundamental questions. Um, but behind it still has to be, you know, how do voters perceive of these changes? How does that shift how they think about what their options are, um, both in economic, political, and societal terms? And can these parties find a, a way back to the center that has been ultimately the glue that has held the European Union fundamentally together, right? This idea of fundamental ability toward compromise. And I think right now we're at a, we're at a it could go both ways. Um, and the, 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 the scarier part is that it could go both ways in a relatively short amount of time. All of us on this call and potentially those listening, you know, didn't get into the game of analyzing and working on European politics and defense policy um, because we thought there would be a, a finite point to it. We thought we would you know, continue to deepen and integrate and uh, work across the Atlantic. And now the more fundamental questions that we thought had been resolved, you know, in some cases up to 70 years ago are back on the table. I know we're running short on time and I just have one last, last question and that's to focus on Washington right now and the administration. Uh, and what what they might be able to do or not um, in uh, in the next year uh, post uh, midterm elections, in the run up to the presidential elections, we know the administration came into power without Europe as a top priority at all. Uh, it wasn't something they wanted to do much more with, except uh, rhetorically, you know, we're we're back and we love you and that kind of thing. Um, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine forced them into having to do much more in terms of actually doing something with Europe. Lots of European meetings. They've really turned around in a lot of ways to, um, to, to focus certainly on the war while at the same time saying, look, but as you know, it's all about China. And it's like, you know, got that. And everyone salutes that. Got it. So, but we look at the administration uh, and in the, in the future, you know, between the midterms and the presidential election, we're looking at uh, the administration having to deal with some of these issues and crises and problems that you're raising and the simultaneous, and the idea that they could all come together at the same time uh, and give us some real problems, uh, you know, is lurking out there. It, it could be smooth sailing. It could be great. And the optimism we've, we've, we've had on this talk could be actually what is the is the the march of the day and things are, are great, or it could not be. So Washington, this administration, the Biden hierarchy, um, you know, how are they going to be? Do you think they're going to be able to handle this well? Or do you think they're going to sit there and grit their teeth and go, "Oh my God, I can't believe we can't get Europe off our plate"? Are they going to come up with new ideas and a new approach and leadership? We've been talking about leaders. Could they fill in that void and be a leader and all this? Or are they going to be kind of drifting a bit because it's before the presidential elections? Biden is is distracted by other things. We've got a, the political problems within the Democratic Party, and in fact, we we can kind of drifting. So, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah, and I'm so I think my and it's, this can be our last question. Maybe Max, you can take on the U.S. piece, and because I think it really is about the staying power, and I think that right that seems feels like the million dollar question of the moment is is for all of the reasons Jim said. Um, 
know, how, what is the, what are the prospects that the U.S. administration can stay the course, particularly in its support for Ukraine? But Catherine, maybe you can weigh in on the, on Berlin, on the Berlin side. So I, I think, I think it's a great question, Jim. Look, I, I, I think the administration has done a fantastic job in response to this crisis, but I think U.S. policy and strategy toward Europe uh, is is of two minds, a little bit confused, a little bit schizophrenic. On the one hand, we want Europe to be strong and basically stand on its own two feet. On the other hand, we really actually enjoy, I think, a, a degree of European dependence. And we're sort of confused on whether Europe will actually can actually be a co-equal partner in helping us manage some of the crises around the world. That I think it's great, for instance, that NATO had real language about China and the Indo-Pacific, but what does that actually entail? And I think in some ways, it just entails Europe starting to think about China and the Indo-Pacific from a security perspective. When I think about the US-EU Trade and Tech Council, what is that about? That's essentially, I think the US and EU thinking about uh, the U.S. suddenly realizing that instead of just focusing on trade and trying to lower barriers and kind of a past sort of neoliberal, neoliberal economic approach, that we need to work with Europe to set the rules of the road for, uh, you know, for the world. And that leads to a much more of a partnership, right, where we're no longer just calling the shots and telling Europeans what to do. Uh, and I think, I think what we need to do is hopefully transition to more of that, and I think that's very true on the defense side. And I think the one area where I would sort of, you know, everything has been great in the administration's response, the amount of support that we're providing Ukraine, the, the movement of forces uh, to bolster NATO, um, and all the achievements that happened at Madrid. I think we sort of missed a moment to really, there's a clear runway for the EU on defense. And I think it's become really apparent in this crisis. And that's a financial role where the EU has stepped up, provided 2.5 billion, billion euros sorry, to, for the, through the European Peace Facility, which is essentially to provide lethal assistance to Ukraine. What, it's, what is it doing? It's essentially a mini version of our Ukraine Assistance Act. It is providing money to European militaries to incentivize them effectively to give equipment to Ukraine. And what we should want is the Europeans, the EU to do a lot more of that. And we sort of not really encouraged it. We've still not really gotten over our, our hangups of the EU being duplicating NATO. And we just need to control out, delete the, those talking points and view the EU as a critical security partner, as one that plays a critical role in trying to develop a European pillar of NATO. And that can work to make Europe a real security partner. And that means, because I'm, I share the fear, Jim, that going forward, that a, a new Republican Congress is going to look at how much money we provided Ukraine militarily and how much the Europeans have provided and be like, what the hell? And that's going to sort of be the new source of friction. The last quick thing I'd say is the the mansion coming uh, uh, coming around and agreeing to uh, the the new the, the new Build Back Better, the Inflationary Reduction Act. Uh, I think is a huge will save transatlantic relations down the road because a lack of action from this administration on climate uh, was going to, I think, be this this potential real problem for transatlantic relations going forward. Maybe not this year, maybe not next year, but in a future Republican administration, man, Europeans would have been like these Americans have done nothing on climate, and now you have a Republican administration that you know it dismisses the whole idea. 
so I, I think this has been, you know, no one will note this, I think, in years ahead, but I think this will lays the uh, foundation for strong uh, uh, transatlantic relations when it comes to climate, which is going to be, I think, critically important to, to both our publics, but particularly in Europe. That's a great point, Max. Catherine, you get the final words. Oh, no pressure or anything. Um, so, you know, I think the recipe here is radical honesty. And I think the Germans, if they got it together, uh, were in this process. I'm literally, my new office looks out on the German foreign office. Um, if they get it together to build this national security strategy, which I cannot not tell you how important it is that Germany finally uh, formulates some foreign policy interests. There's a China strategy forthcoming. We've seen snippets back and forth. They seem to align very well with the Americans. But again, you know, if we've learned something about how long it took for this transatlantic renaissance to really function um, and how Ukraine actually uh, worked to facilitate and, and speed that up, is the fact that we have a lot more radical honesty um, that is needed. And so, I mean, to Jim's earlier point, that means, you know, making, we've made those clear commitments on enhanced forward presence and on our troops stationed um, in Eastern Europe. But, you know, if Russia makes good, quote unquote, on some of the threats it's been uh, banding around on our uh, Nordic neighbors here, we've got to have a clear response. So clarity in terms of what, what interests are. And in my mind, that begins with, with Germany, because I do think that, you know, for all the wonderfully creative ideas on the future of Europe and the European political community and bringing more humility to the relationship, particularly with uh, Eastern neighbors that um, Macron and Enrico Letta and others have put on the table, Germany needs to really get on board here and provide some clarity and its own newly defined version of leadership. So that's absolutely fundamental. And I expect, nay, demand, again, as a German voter and taxpayer, and as somebody who's participating in this finding process of the national security strategy, that that be in that. Um, and that is critical, I think, for this moment. Um, the, the narrative is another one on this side, which is to say, uh, to Jim's point, if um, American authority and capacity to steer this process might be waning because the congressional elections end up um, falling toward the Republican side or creating more divisions, then what can the Europeans do now to try to bring some of the uh, gains over these last two years into safe harbor? And yes, there's the part of, you know, speeding up um, some of the, the, the good things that have come out of the EU Trade and Technology Council, but there's another interesting spin on, um, you know, and I cannot tire of pointing out that um, Europeans need to be paying attention to a shift in power dynamics um, in the United States, not least with the verdicts of the Supreme Court. Again, you know, what the Europeans would refer to as devolution, so much more power being put in the hands of American states is also going to mean that European policymakers suddenly have to start looking at powerful governors in the United States. It's not least uh, for the points that Max made. Um, you know, if we're talking about California or even uh, Florida to certain degrees, you're going to have to pay attention to how power is shifting in the United States and not just to, quote unquote, tut tut the transatlantic relationship across another presidential administration that might not be as benign to transatlantic interests, but because there is a real question of, 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 of power. Uh, shifting around um, in the U.S. system. And um, if Europeans are smart, they'll begin to see that. Um, and they'll begin to see it quickly, uh, again, because we don't know exactly what the nomination cycle is going to be like, if there's going to be a change on the Democratic side, if suddenly a Gavin Newsom pops up as a potential presidential candidate, it would behoove the Europeans to have an understanding of 
of how closely aligned a, a state like California has been to European objectives on technology, on climate, and others. So look, radical honesty, clarity in terms of power and movements of power. I mean, it's all the old dynamics, if you will, rethought for the modern world, um, an understanding of who the main players are, and then, of course, uh, an ability to interface very closely with one another in a way that the respective publics will understand. I'll make this final point. Anthony Blinken was here, gave this, gave a wonderful speech trying to rally the Europeans, uh, particularly the Germans, uh, onto the Ukrainian case. Um, I was there, it was in the middle of the afternoon. No television station took that speech live. A message was entirely lost uh, on the Europeans and on the Germans. So which is all to say, we've got to, again, find other ways of getting our messages across the Atlantic. I'm hoping that the Transatlantic Futures Forum, which I'm going to be running here at Bertelsmann, is one way to do it. Um, but there are lots of different ways in which we need to stay in very close contact, practice that radical honesty, and that joint responsibility. Phew. We covered so much ground. Um, I hope listeners enjoyed it. I mean, it just underscores really just the 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 breadth and the depth and just the huge scope of issues that I feel like are percolating in the transatlantic community and Catherine and Max, I think you've helped folks, you know, at least home in on some of the key issues, understand how you're thinking and understanding these things. So we're really appreciative of both, uh, both of you for taking the time to do that. And we hope that this will be a continuing conversation with both of you. So thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. This was just really much more than I could even imagine. So it's great. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thanks to both of you. Thank you as always. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.